this is Gans, and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of everything going on in European technology. Today, I'm talking with Hayutia, the co-founder and CEO at Aiden.ai, a platform that helps marketers optimize their campaigns using artificial intelligence. Marie started Aiden in June 2016, raised a total of 2.4 million euros, and 1,219 days later, sold it to Twitter. She's one of the most impressive founders I know, and in this episode, we cover absolutely everything. We start with a somewhat random question to warm up, but then we get straight into it. Why she started Aiden, raising money while being pregnant, how to build a great team, the importance of having more female founders, being acquired by Twitter, and much, much more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. In one of your first interviews, you mentioned that there are a lot of similarities between actors, movie actors, and startup founders. Why do you think that is? Yeah, uh, for two reasons, really. I think the first one is typecast. Uh, if you have some success in an area, whether it's uh, biotech or femtech or B2B SaaS, then you will be uh, associated to that environment. So if you decide to go from being the founder of a B2B SaaS startup to then try something that's B2C, um, that typically you know, would be the same example as actors trying to go from comedy to drama. Um, it's really difficult. It has been done, of course. Um, you know, just thinking of Charlie Theron, for example, who uh, was like playing in sort of light uh, roles where she was always more of a sex symbol, and then going on to impersonate Aileen Warnos, a serial killer, is not an obvious transition. Um, and then, you know, I guess on the other hand, you can find uh, someone like David Trimmer, who who was Ross Geller in Friends, who's found it really, really hard for people to stop picturing him as Ross the funny dude. Um, and I think it's the same. It's the same kind of thing when you're a startup founder. You get very quickly associated to uh, a vertical that you either succeeded in already, or you could have potential to succeed in. I.e., um, you know, if I show up and I say hi, my name is Maria. I have a computer science degree at Stanford. You've already kind of sent lots of strong signals. As opposed to if you say, hi, my name is Maria, I have a business degree from Kedge Business School, Marseille, south of France. Um, now, of course, nothing is impossible, but I think there's um, a lot of parallels there. And the second one is the capacity to endure rejection. Actors constantly have to go to castings and get told, no, you're not going to get the role um, it's very brutal. It's also very personal in their case because, the, you know, the role went to somebody else who was just better. Uh, whereas in a startup, it's a combination of things, I guess. It could be the team. It could be the go-to-market strategy. And oftentimes people say you should come back and, you know, we'll see in six months or we'll see in a year if we can invest in the next round. Whereas with actors, of course, that's unlikely to happen. You just didn't get the role. That's it. And you have to pick up your ego get pumped back up and just like gather all this energy to try again and again and again um, until you get the role. I think it's very inspiring, but also 
uh, you know, just a good example to set the scene when you think you're very miserable because you didn't get funding or uh, you got a no, just think of actors and you'll feel much better immediately. You referred uh, to this term that I haven't heard before. Um, probably it's a thing or maybe you coined it, that is uh, shoulder shrugging. You mentioned that was an extremely important skill and it's related to that. Uh, how do you cultivate that skill over the years? Yeah, it's a muscle, actually. I think it's an attitude you can really develop and it's just a way of looking at things. So I'll give you just like a precise example. So we had to shoulder shrug a million things, but for example, <laughs> if you're um, trying to really convince this super smart candidate to join your company, and they choose someone else. We actually had a, a really brilliant product manager who applied for a role, and Leah, who is our head of product then, just really wanted them to, to join, and they just decided, I'm sorry, I'm just not gonna join your company because I'm moving to Berlin for love, actually, this is a nice story. But you know, you could be like, oh my God, but I have to go back and convince them, because you could always do that, really. You could just like, you know, pull something like founders do we just have this ability to sell the, the story and the vision but then you need to you know stop for a second just be like wait i'm not the center of the world i'm gonna realize that this is not personal and this works in every scenario a vc doesn't want to fund you it's not personal shoulder shrug it just move on it's never actually personal like the one thing is like it's so so easy to just think oh it's because they don't believe in me or they don't believe in you know, my company, yeah, there's a little bit of truth in that, of course, but it doesn't matter. And I think it's just so, so toxic to start seeing through this prism of thinking, it's me, it's not you, it's just the context, it's whoever they met before, and just like move on. Were you sort of born with this skill or did you learn it as time goes through? Or maybe you read the Stoics, uh, I don't know. I mean, I was rejected so many times before I started this company because I took on sales roles. So I put myself in that position. I, you know, started my career in Paris. I was, you know, really bottom of the, the ladder and I was doing account management for brands in a media agency. I was paid 27 cases. Like that kind of job doesn't even count. If you leave, they're like, fine, we'll find someone else. I felt like I wasn't exposed enough to being rejected actually, because you don't, matter enough to even be rejected this is how bad it is so i really wanted in my career to have the opportunity to be in a role where i'm frontline you know where it matters where you make or you break the the situations and i i did like i took on a, a couple of sales roles afterwards and i think you have to develop that skill because yeah it's very unnatural you know especially if you were brought up in a loving family that didn't like ostracize you anything you don't actually know what it feels like and I just had a sense that um, I wouldn't be able to to succeed in entrepreneurship if I uh, wasn't exposed to to that so I, I put myself in the situation willingly and that I'll get rejected loads of times <laughs> <laughs> well starting a company is as frontline as it gets <laughs> pretty much <laughs> yeah <laughs> So my, my background is, is in growth. So growth is mostly, it's not customer facing at all, except for customer research. But for the past two years, I had to do a lot of sales. And like the amount of stuff I learned has been mind blowing to me in the past couple of mm -hmm. years. So I gotta, I gotta yeah. thank my, my CEO for that. 
And you're also, I mean, you're, right now you're doing something that's super hard to do as well. You're trying to break through in a space where everybody's competing for uh, attention span and you're writing content, you're investing a lot of your time. It's very high risk and like the rewards are unlikely to happen. So I think it's, you know, there's lots of different ways. You don't have to be door to door selling Bibles, uh, you know, to, to try to experience that feeling. There's lots of situations where you can, but I do feel like we live in a society where people are trying to shield themselves from risk, from anything that feels uncomfortable. Of course, you can see that through everyone using apps all the time that makes them feel good about themselves. Even during the COVID-19 quarantine, like so many people on Instagram are still posting things, which is interesting because it shows that it's part of our society to require people's approvals to, to be happy. And I would even say strangers' approval. Whereas, you know, when you're putting yourself in a situation where you're exposing yourself to strangers' rejection, it teaches you a very different kind of things. Yeah, well, there's probably a biological reason for that, you know? Being ostracized 3,000 year years ago was probably deadly. Huh? But you're talking about learning, and before we hit record, uh, we were discussing COVID, like we all do. And you, I said that people don't learn from other people, but you said that you certainly did, that you talked with many founders in your journey why you do that? How you do it? What do you learn? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I recognize, so I'm, I'm a first time uh, founder with Aiden AI, although I did start uh, another small side project before, but that wasn't a, a startup. So I think the only thing I knew is that I didn't know. And then there's different ways of sort of filling that gap of knowledge What's interesting is that, of course, um, what we were doing was a, an AI startup. So was, I was constantly reading things about machine learning and how it works because I come from a non-technical background. And right at the beginning, I found it fascinating to understand that uh, neural networks are essentially systems that learn from each other's mistakes. You know, this is how they, you just serve them millions of pictures of cats and then just one algorithm understands whether the whiskers are belong to a cat and then the other part of the neural network decides whether the eyes belong to a cat and they talk to each other and they kind of decide actually that the model becomes much more accurate because they communicate whereas if you look at how humans <laughs> tend to learn things there's two major ways i guess by experience like the just do it school of entrepreneurs as people call it just i'm going to learn i'm just going to do all my mistakes myself and then um, reading from, from books and you know, from, from literature. Now, we do live in a world where everybody now, and I say everybody, I mean all the startup ecosystem, whether it's VCs or founders, writes and share their experiences about hiring, about fuck-ups, sorry, excuse my French, about you know, how they are raised around and they post that on Medium or you, know, you, you post things on, on blogs and share that knowledge with everyone. So I feel like it's such a privilege to be starting a company in this time, you know, in this decade, as opposed to even Ben Horowitz, you know, or, you know, when he started his company, because I was just, I loved his first book, which basically is the hard things about the hard things and such a good title as well, because it captures all the hard stuff that you, you don't know about. But he was like completely devoid of this network of people who told you how they did it before so they really had no other choice than just doing it themselves and we do now we do all this the founders today or in the last few years that started companies have access and i think it's such a mistake to just go ahead 
you have to spend a little bit of time studying things. And I'm not talking about being, you know, an academic, like spending a year reading or listening to every podcast that you can put your hands on. But, but I've certainly spent, I'd say, I'd say I've spent about six months doing that before I even started the company. So speaking to other founders, uh, being very humble because you've got nothing to offer. They've been so kind. This ecosystem is so benevolent. It's amazing because, you know, you could think, well, why would I spend five minutes even of my time with who the hell is Marie? You know, okay, she wants to start a startup. Sure, I'm going to see a lot more people like this. Again, going back to the analogy with actors, it's the same thing. You know, oh, I want to become a famous Hollywood actor. No, I want to sell a company to, you know, Facebook or Twitter. Yeah, we've heard that all before. But then people kind of really share their experience if they see that, that of course, you've put in the homework. So I think this is really something you have to tap into. You can't just throw yourself out there. And then once you've got a little bit of knowledge from, from different types of people and you have specific questions with them, like how did you hire all the questions that, of course, you're answering through this podcast and many other ways, but it's also good to have FaceTime with those people because you get a different kind of signal will help you build the rest of the journey. Do you think people don't start enough companies because they don't know this information is available? One of my questions is, um, that I, I like to ask guests is something like, where are the biggest bottlenecks holding more people back from, from starting companies? I think a lot of people think that this information is hard to access. And to a certain extent, it is true. You know, you're going to have to really want it to get it. And I think a lot of people just don't like effort, you know, because it's, it's too much effort. It's a lot of effort before it pays off. I think we're, we want instant success in everything we do. And yeah, that's like high risk. You're going to spend six months without a salary or unless you've got a side job. Getting rejected half the time because people are too busy to reply. There are some CEOs I've reached out to eight times before they even answered. <laughs> and you know, my sister was like, well, how do you come up with something that's not, you know, annoying when you reach out to them again? I was like, honestly, I don't know. I just like, sometimes I even joke. You just like try different things and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I think it's definitely a lot of effort and something you have to concentrate on. And that has to be your only goal. Do you think this is uh, harder for female founders? I don't think so. I think what's hard is when you don't understand the codes. <laughs> I didn't understand the codes. I did a lot of football, as we would say in French, but it's okay. It's just, you know, <laughs> for example, small things. When people introduce you, you have to reply, BCC them. Thank you for the introduction, moving you to BCC, this very unbox. Small things, but that's part of the etiquette, right? People very quickly know whether or not you're a newbie, essentially. <laughs> And it's okay, you know, I mean, I've, I've spent time right now, like I spend some of my time not mentoring because I, I don't think it's mentoring, but just speaking to uh, aspiring entrepreneurs. And of course, you know, it's easy to know whether they, they are the first person I reach out to or if they've done this quite a bit. So I do think that when you're a female founder, it's not so much that it's harder as such, it's more like there's fewer female founders. So it's less likely that you have a network unless you've got a network of guys who might teach you the codes. Then, and you might say no to this, but I 
think uh, we need more female founders. Do you agree? Why would I say no to this? <laughs> we need loads of female founders. What are the non-obvious reasons why we need loads of female founders? I think none of the reasons are obvious. I think people just, you know, politely say we'll need more because diversity is a very politically correct topic these days. But I do feel like people are not really convinced. Uh, thankfully, there's a lot of rational data that's just factual data that's coming out and that's explaining that actually diversity brings superior results. So just like is better for the bottom line, which everybody understands, of course. But I think, you know, it's just, it's so simple. It's just that you have to be contrarian or another way of putting it is that consensus does not breed innovation. So if you surround yourself with people who agree with you, sure, you feel very comfortable. And it's hmm. quite nice to have people who just like, gone so that's such an amazing idea. But really, you're still going to be the company that does the same thing over and over again. Whereas if you surround yourself with people who, you know, diversity is not just gender diversity, of course, it's cognitive diversity. So, you know, people who think and approach problem solving differently, uh, people who are introverts, people who are extroverts, people who are technical, uh, have technical backgrounds, who are engineers and people with business uh, people. But just like mixing up those different perspectives feels very uncomfortable because you don't really agree. And it's hard to build a bridge sometimes to be like, wait, let me try to think about how Gonz is seeing this problem because I definitely would have like, come to the same conclusion. He might be right. It's, it eventually, I think, really leads to... Um, to superior outcomes. This is quite intangible to prove, but there's a lot of people who are just trying to now attach data to those claims um, and they're doing it quite successfully. There's a bunch of people, I think you've spoken already to Caroline Ramad, who is a founder of I'm talking with her in a couple of hours. Oh, that's great, there you go. Yeah. She's a fantastic person, she's doing a lot for this, to, to put this into light. To articulate, you know, the numbers that are attached to this, huge problem we absolutely need a lot more female founders how do you make sure you surround yourself with people who think exactly like you because that's that's the easy thing right we all pattern match we all sort of sort of hire for people like who are like us how do you make sure you get to that consensus environment well i think that's a really good question for me it was sort of natural to do it because you know we were starting a very technical company and I'm not from a technical background. So for the longest time, for you know, almost two and a half years, it was like 90% of engineers um, in the company. So naturally, of course, you know, that meant people who are different from my education. Actually, we, they were all guys, unfortunately. We did have a few female employees, but it was so hard to recruit female engineers. Not that we haven't tried. So, you know, I think in my scenario, it's easier. I think it's much harder if you're doing a business that's really sort of gendered, if that makes sense. So for, uh, for example, I guess June, which is a French startup that does nappies, tend to attract more females, which is tougher, you know, to kind of sell this to, to people who aren't already parents as well. So I think it's harder because you end up sometimes typecasting again the type of people who should join your business. And it goes one way or another, of course, if you're doing like a sports company, then it's, you know, harder to have people who don't exercise, but it doesn't mean that they can't bring something amazing to your business. So I think it's really, really hard and you have to make it a choice. 
you have to be super intentional about it because naturally you'll just have, you'll feel comfortable with people who you share things with. This is where bias is such a problem. It's just, we're all victim of it. It's completely unconscious. And at the end of the day, it makes you feel good to, you know, share things with people who you feel close to and you need to make sure that this is the right decision. And I was rubbish at hiring. I was really bad because I think I just, I, you know, I just thought, oh, I like this person. That's great. <laughs> and then, you know, it leads you to, to not the best um, decisions. But, but you actually managed uh, to build a great team and that team eventually got acquired by, by Twitter. I made loads of mistakes. Actually, they weren't, thank God, they weren't all in the startup. We like, were already very conscious that it was something we need to fix when we started the company. I actually just put it out there. I was very transparent with our investors. I actually told them, I'm not very good at hiring. Can you please, I mean, you know, as I don't have a good track record of hiring. Uh, can you please advise on how to fix this? And someone, it was Jean, I think, Jean Laroche Brochard from Kima. Yep. who recommended a book that I love that's called Who? The Methodology for Hiring. And it basically just outlines a very simple methodology, which means when you're hiring someone, you have to ask them four questions for all the roles they had. So you start by the oldest role they ever had, even if it was a role you had when you were 18 years old, that's fine. And you ask them, uh, what were you hired to do? What was the highlights? of you working at this company, what was the low lights and why did you leave? And then you just start all over again for all the different positions they have. You just take notes. It's not a conversation, it's them talking. And, and then you kind of, you can see a very clear picture of actually whether or not there's a pattern. It's easier if that person has gone through multiple roles. Of course, if they're uh, very junior, then it's much harder. But you'll see that, you know, people will explain why they left and it's always very interesting. For example, if someone tells you, yeah, I, you know, I basically wanted to do a lot more and I wasn't given the opportunity. I felt like I was really put in a little space and no one was listening to me at first. I was like, that's brilliant. We need those kind of people. This is exactly what we need. And I got really excited. And then I realized, wait, those people keep saying that in every situation they've been, it was the others who were the problem. You know, so actually you start seeing things as well. So this is a negative example, but of course you have very positive examples as well. Uh, and you can see that, you know, people said I didn't want to leave, but, you know, I was um, given another opportunity and I really wanted to develop a new skill. So I decided that it was the right time for me to do it. So you can actually really start to see into people's motivations as well to, to join a startup. That really helped us. And then, of course, we had, for the technical hires, we had a... A technical test. We used HackerRank, which was an amazing tool. Honestly, I highly recommend it. Everyone should do that because our test was, it was hard. We didn't reinvent the wheel. We just um, did some specific technical questions that were sort of the same process that Facebook and Google use. But they were very hard in the sense that we only had 10% of candidates who managed to go on the other side, which was a challenge at the beginning because you're, you need to hire fast on your startup and you don't have like a million people banging on your door because you're not Google. So we hesitated at some point, but like, should we decrease the level of complexity of this test because we really can't afford to wait forever. And we decided not to, and in the end, it really, really paid off, which is why we, we had, you know, 
amazing people working on our team. The framework you describe is something that for some reason I haven't come across. What are some other red flags you could point to founders? Well, the first thing is that we're sort of taking the emotion out of the process in the sense that the founder's responsibility to start with is to have a very strict application process. Of course, you could say, well, you're a tiny startup. Why would you bother? Processes, processes, can't be asked. And that's a huge mistake. So the first red flag is on you if you don't have a process. So we had three technical interviews. They were all very different. Uh, and then the last one was the non-technical interview with me, which was also a cultural interview at the end day. And then, you know, of course, it's the discussion. We then, you know, have those four people who interviewed the candidates who get together. And if you don't have four employees, you can get an investor to do one of the interviews, which we did early on. We discuss uh, and we just basically rate the candidate based on a few different things. So culture fits, technical skills, you know, how uh, motivated we thought they were. And, and I always ask the question of, because like most people we saw could have gotten a job very easily at a big company and allegedly like maybe getting paid 30 to 40% more because we didn't pay like enormous salaries. And I always ask them, well, why, why would you take this job? Like you can get this job with free breakfast and all those perks. Come on, you know, are you serious about this? Just to see. Because sometimes they're here a little bit because they're practicing or whatever. You don't know and you want to get to that. And I think the red flags after that would be, yeah, people who just want to be at a startup. Doesn't matter which one. That didn't work out for us at all. Anyone who hadn't even looked at our websites, you'd be surprised. I think... You know, it didn't happen very, very often, but it happened because we were looking for machine learning engineers or data scientists. And everybody's looking for data scientists and machine learning engineers. So very quickly, you'll see that there are people who are just like, you know, oh, it's one other interview I have because I get loads of interviews. They're not preparing. They're not preparing. They're not the kind of people you want. And I think it's just one mistake is to think, well, I'm a startup. I can't be really picky. I can't afford to be picky because I'm not Google. Yeah, it's good to be humble. That's for sure. Don't think that you are Google because you're not. But just don't like, you don't deserve to have people who just didn't get any other jobs and who just casually might spend a bit of time with you. They have to believe in what you're doing. They have to understand the market a little bit. And I do believe, even if they're technical, that they need to have some interest in the business side of things. A tiny bit. I'm not expecting them to be able to, you know, understand the business plan and everything. But I, I find it very revealing when you have someone who's just not interested at all in the entrepreneurial side of things, especially if it's an early stage startup. 1,219 days. Uh, that's the number of days since your co-founder and you decided to sort of give the idea a go. You also mentioned a couple of times in, in this sort of recording that you're not technical. How do you decide to give this idea a go versus a million other ideas? What's the unique combination of uh, background, skills, interests that led you to start Aiden and not another company? For sure. So in 2015, which is when I left my day job to start a company, I uh, knew that I couldn't get the right like, idea straight away. So I just decided to take a little bit of time. So we started the company in July 2016, 
PJ and I knew each other, uh, but we weren't working together. He was working on a separate project back then. So he was working on different projects. So I started three projects, which I killed before we decided to start this together. Back then we were working, I was working from Tech Hub in London and it was linked to the same building as Google Campus. So one day I got an email saying Eric Schmidt is coming and he's going to be talking to you guys in 10 minutes if you want to pop around. I was just there two floors away so I just went and you know it was already like in the early stages of just building out different types of uh, ideas that were revolving around BI, business intelligence. And of course, I was reading a lot about machine learning and how this could um, be included in the new types of softwares. And he started talking about AI. Of course, a lot of discussion revolved around conversational AI back then. But then he said, you know, he just said, look, this is going to be the biggest revolution in the startup world in the next 10 years, which seems very obvious. But, you know, coming from Eric Schmidt, who just popped over <laughs> in Shoreditch, it just felt... <laughs> a lot more powerful you pay uh, special attention definitely <laughs> oh you do yeah and so in 2016 essentially you know everybody was already talking about how ai and machine learning could be used in new startups so that's one thing that was happening and then on the other hand i was really passionate about what was happening uh, in the enterprise world when it comes to what people used to call digital transformation but that really evolved into something bigger so if I take a step back, essentially about 10 to 15 years ago, all the companies started realizing that data matters. So this is what people call the big data revolution. Companies started equipping themselves with tools that allow them to capture the data. So the oldest type of company you could think of is SAP, you know, big enterprise software tool uh, from the 1970s, if I, if I remember correctly. But then this new wave of innovation started appearing around 2010, which was Looker, Tableau. And this was the new wave. So that's not just data capturing, it's data service and data normalization, but also democratization of the access to that data, which historically was really reserved to an elite. So you had, you know, the pace of business was quarterly. Now those quarterly business reviews and people who were in the know could access the data. And then it kind of trickled down to the lower levels. With Looker and Tableau, all of a sudden, people who are on the operational level started making decisions on a daily basis. And anyone could see the data because they all could have personalized dashboards. And I was really fascinated by, by that. But of course, it felt, you know, 2016 felt a little bit late to start a new data visualization company. So we're just like thinking the ship has sailed. There must be other people who are better positioned to execute on that, although it's still a massive pain point. Because if you ask marketers today or anyone in businesses, they still tell you it's a big pain point. But what they don't know is that there are companies that have already solved it. Maybe they haven't found them, but you don't want to be starting that company now. So then we thought, okay, well, what doesn't exist is the next wave. And the next wave is software who don't only surface and normalize the data, but also go a step further. They help you by recommending what the next action should be i.e. how do you improve your ROI? And specifically, if we're talking about marketing, this breaks down into three different applications. Where should I be spending my money on Facebook, on Twitter, on Snapchat? How do I improve my results? So what should I be focusing on in terms of KPI? And just analyzing trends and anomalies in the spend. 
which is very um, easy application of machine learning, detecting spikes and drops. What's the scariest thing you went through during those 1200 days? The scariest thing? There's what happens in the business world. And I can't say I was really scared about that because again, I don't take things personally. So you're entering this willingly, it's super high risk. You know, there's nine startups out of 10 that disappear in the first two years. So I wasn't scared. I certainly knew that it could go one way or another because of fundraising, because of hiring the right people, go to market, all those things. But I don't think I felt scared really, other than keeping your motivation and your drive, I think. This is hard sometimes. And it can be hard if it drags on for a long time because it's really, it consumes you, you know. <laughs> you, do, you do kind of spend all of your time, or you don't really have holidays because even if you go away, you're constantly thinking about it, which could be a little bit toxic sometimes for your personal lives. So I think I wasn't scared, I was very aware that you have to keep a balance because it could, you know, you could ruin your marriage by starting a company. So how much do you want to lose? How much are you willing to invest in this? Thank God I'm still married for now. So there's, there's a few things that you need to think about. A lot of people just ask me whether or not, you know, my pregnancy was very different because I was running startup. It was absolutely great actually to do this while being pregnant. It's very unique. I have stories to tell my daughter for the longest time now and lots of pictures of her on stage still being being in my tummy. So I think hmm. that's, that's quite unique and you have to take it as a great experience. But I think you can also have some, you know, personal things that scare you a little bit. For example, we moved to San Francisco for um, three months to do our own sort of acceleration program where we didn't give equity to anyone. We just <laughs> rented a big house and just put all our employees in it and started working as if we were an accelerator program. And yeah, I was very far away. I, you know, missed some important family uh, reunions. And so I think that's very scary not to be there for important things because life goes on. Uh, and it's, you know, even if people understand when you know you're missing a funeral because you're 12 hours away, that's not, you're not very happy about the choices you've made in that moment. So I think it's more like the, the things that you miss out on because of the choices you've made which can be sometimes difficult. You race around, you're in a company while being pregnant, uh, then with a kid. Like, what are the best frameworks or tools you've come across for time allocation management? Okay, that's such a tough question. I don't really have uh, good advice to give. I can tell you what I've done, but I don't know whether it's good or not. I think I've struggled a lot with time allocation because I think there's, only two modes you can be in. You can be in action mode or you can be in thinking mode. And sometimes people think you always have to be in action mode. They want to see you do things. They want to see you run around. They think this is what our CEO's job is. And I found that being on my own in a room without any distractions and a notebook, because I'm a little bit old school, has had very good effects on the company. <laughs> So just isolating yourself and being able to cut that time out, I think is super crucial. So make people understand that it's not doing one-on-ones every single day that will have the best impact for the company. Of course, you know, it's super tough if you don't have a support around you. So I've been 
enormously, enormously helped by my family. And I'm saying my family is my husband because I live in, in the UK, but I'm French, so I don't have family here. So we're on our own. We had uh, childcare as well, but you know, <laughs> not very convenient. We had to walk for like 20 minutes, like most people to you know, uh, leave a daughter at the time minders. So it wasn't like we had all of a system where we had 20 nannies and it wasn't like that because you're not even paid uh, a lot of money, of course, when you're running your own startup. So you can't afford all this help that you can afford later on. So I think it's just really about organizing your life in advance. So you have nine months when you're pregnant, thank God, to uh, organize what it's going to be like afterwards. But you can't just wing it. You cannot wing it. You will, like, you'll burn out. Uh, and I think it's something you don't want to lose. Just be very conscious of what you don't want to lose when you're doing this. So you got acquired by, by Twitter. How did it feel to get that first approach? Oh, the first time we ever interacted with him? Maybe the first interaction or, or the first time you actually said, oh shit, this might happen. So we got approached by some people who were interested in us and, and then somebody recommended that because we were approached, we might as well talk to other people. And that's fair enough. So I was just asked to write a short intro email for that email to be passed on to Twitter Fun fact, lots of people imagine that you get acquired because you had a long-standing relationship with the company. We had never spoken to Twitter, ever. And the first time we ever did was in August 2019. And then three months later, we belonged to Twitter. The first sort of thing I remember is me writing this introduction email. It was 2 a.m. in SF. It was late because uh, we had promised the team who we lived with because we moved into this house with everyone to go bowling. And I really did not want to go bowling, to be completely <laughs> honest, which I could not admit to them because I had to write this email. So I was just falling asleep and needed to send this email before I went to bed. And I just thought, okay, well, I'm going to have to send it because the words will matter. And it's funny because uh, eventually it's a lot of other things that mattered. But I just remember thinking, I'm thanking myself for having powered through <laughs> in that particular moment. Then, you know, the, the first moment that we thought it was done for me was on the 21st of November 2019, when it was done. I never considered it was done before. I actually didn't even tell my parents for a long time, because this is what happens. You get excited, you start talking about it, and then people get excited for you. And then it's just like, Gons, this is so amazing. Like you're going to sell your company to whatever X, Y, Z. And I did not want that to happen because of course you never know. And things could fall through and they have a million times before. So it's not done before it's done. <laughs> <laughs> What's an unexpected thing from, from getting acquired? It could be at the personal level, at the company level or whatever. Well, the timing was particularly interesting for us because we, of course, you know, got acquired before COVID-19 hit. It's a very different landscape right now, whether it's fundraising or acquisitions, uh, or even if you're not fundraising and you're not in acquisition discussions, you might be struggling to get clients. So it's, we're very, very conscious, very unexpected, of course, to have been this lucky in terms of the timing. 
and like we're not responsible for this no one is but it's certainly very very fortunate Sadly, your technology is is helping millions now because uh, you're integrating it with twitter right how does it feel ha have you ever thought about optimizing by impact yeah 100 percent. yes uh, this was one of the it's the only reason why we joined <laughs> another company because it's just that's the only thing that drives you as an entrepreneur is the impact there's so much sacrifice of course you're doing this for you know the the hope um, that what you're working on your little idea might reach lots of people and this was so so important in our discussions is the thing that triggered the shift from no there's no way we're, we're just doing this we're going to keep developing our business to oh wait this makes total sense because joining forces with of course such an amazing company as Twitter is also a factor that plays a little bit, but you have to also put in the context of what's going to happen once I'm on the other side. Right. And this is exactly like word for word impact. What drove us to, to join Twitter. Why does Twitter think that empowering small businesses is important? Yeah, I think, I mean, um, I am not disclosing anything secret here. What's happening in the world right now is that when there's a crisis that hits like COVID, all of the advertising budgets from big brands are you know, either being put on hold or slowing down for a period of time before they restart. But it's not the case for SMBs. SMBs have a very different set of challenges and they still need to survive and they need ways to acquire users at scale. And, you know, whether that's Twitter or any other ways of acquiring users, it's just vital for this ecosystem of SMBs to have efficient ways of putting their brands in front of the potential market. And more now than ever before, because we're all locked up. And of course, you need to be able to do this from home. I think that's a perfect uh, note uh, to end on. Thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure uh, talking. Thanks very much, Gonzo. It was great. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, this is Gonzo. If you enjoyed this episode of the CTM podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeatTable.com. SeatTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.